Welcome to Happenings of Grace, a podcast dedicated to sharing the ways in which God works in the congregation of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. I'm Timothy Nargi, one of the ruling elders, and today we have a discussion about the book Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth by Thaddeus Williams. This will be an ongoing discussion dealing with questions of justice, one question a month for 12 months. The discussion is hosted jointly by the men's and women's ministries of Grace Covenant Church, and anyone can join in on the discussion at any time. Our first question is, does our vision of social justice take seriously the Godhood of God? Apologies for the audio quality, we had some technical difficulties. Nevertheless, we hope you enjoy the discussion and that you too would be a part of it. Alright, please uh, join me in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for uh, this book that we are about to uh, dive into. Thank you for uh, Thaddeus Williams and his willingness to address a situation that is affecting our culture and even the church. Lord, we ask that you would uh, edify our conversation tonight, that you would be with us, um, that we would all be um, respectful to each other um, and that we would sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron. We pray that you bless this evening tonight, bless our conversation for the benefit of Grace Covenant, for the benefit of Williamsburg and our nation and even the world. Lord, we ask this all in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are here to discuss that first of 12 questions, which is, does our vision of social justice take seriously the Godhood of God? Um, I think it's really intriguing that Thaddeus Williams started with this is his first question, although technically the first question in the book is what is social justice? Um, and he doesn't have an answer because I don't think there there is one, depending on how many groups can lay hold to the claim that they are the ones seeking justice and how opposing their worldviews can be. Um, this is one of those words that kind of gets thrown around so much that it no longer has a meaning. It can mean whatever you want it to mean, which is dangerous because justice does mean something. Um, And so I think it's fascinating that his first of 12 is almost parallel to the first of the 10 commandments, which is you shall have no other gods before me. And so starting with that, as that has to be our first priority with understanding who God is before we can start understanding who we are supposed to be in relation to our neighbor, we have to know what we were created for and who we were created by. Um, So a lot of what we want to kind of discuss tonight comes somewhat from the forward with the four points that John Perkins gives us about how we engage in these kind of conversations, but also from Thaddeus Williams' little introduction as to what social justice is and his differentiation of social justice A versus social justice B. Um, which I think is one of the main criticisms of the book is that he still uses the word social justice because even that term is polarizing. If you think of people who um, use social justice warrior as an insult when they are you know, looking at people who are seeking out injustice and seeking to confront injustice in all manner of ways, that that almost is something that is worth laughing at. And sometimes it does get very funny, right? We've all seen PETA billboards about calling fish sea kittens, or maybe we haven't, that's just me on the internet too much. Um, but 
this is such a like there is such a thing as justice and so weirdly i think it connects to um a quote that c.s lewis had in his afterward to the screw tape letters which is that there are two equal and opposite errors we can come to when it comes to the topic of devils and one is to disbelieve in their existence and the other is to believe too much and have an unhealthy interest in them and I don't mean to demonize social justice at all, but I think those two errors still exist, that there is a tendency, particularly from a certain worldview, to deny the existence of injustice, that nothing's wrong, that you're just not working hard enough, or you are reading things too like seriously, or it was just a joke. There isn't such a thing as injustice. But then there's also the other equal and opposite error, which is that everything is injustice and everything is somehow uh, worthy of outrage and worthy to get mad at. If we look at what, I mean, even the debate over cancel culture has a huge kind of engine in this as to how mad we were supposed to get about things. Um, so to kind of get away from me talking, um, if you could, <laughs> I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts after reading the first question, which does our vision of social justice take seriously the godhood of God? What does that have to mean for us? Any thoughts? Well, I'll just keep listening. Um, <laughs> but maybe just for this group, we could settle on a definition for social justice because we're going to all use that phrase a lot. We are. And we probably want to make sure that we hear what the other person means mm -hmm. when they say that phrase. And I know that's probably a whole can of worms that we take all night, but so maybe I will retract the request, but you just need to be aware that when we say that phrase, we probably need to define before we speak what that means to us and how we use it. There's a great definition on page 14. There is. Mm -hmm. Page 14, it says, uh, the last, second to last paragraph, I guess, it says, in short, well, it actually doesn't. It's not social justice. It just says social injustice is first and foremost a matter of misplaced worship. Well, the opposite of social justice would be properly placed. Properly placed. Yes. Right. It's down social at the justice. very bottom, like right properly before that last placed. sentence. So it says these grim snapshots okay. raise three okay. questions about social justice and worship. So the 12 questions are divided into four parts, and they kind of all focus somewhat on idolatry in some way. And so the first three are about orienting us toward a proper understanding of who we are meant to worship. And then the rest of the questions kind of orient to how we are supposed to worship and how does that worship then show itself appropriately and how we relate not just vertically to God, but horizontally to each other, and especially to people with whom we have no other communion with, right? With people who are not members of the body of Christ, how do we still engage with them in a way that shows uh, what it should that shows our understanding of who God is and who we have to be because of that. Um, in the very back in the appendices, he has a table that differentiates um, the differences between social justice A and social justice B. And so social justice A, it's on page 162, if people want to turn to that in the epilogue. Social justice A is the one that he defines as what we typically understand to be social justice now of focusing on the uh, oppressor versus oppressed like worldview that always it comes down to that and therefore the oppressor is always morally wrong and the oppressed is always therefore morally superior and that restitution must be made in order to level out those playing fields of privilege um but 
social justice, or I'm sorry, social justice B is the one that he defines that. Social justice A is supposed to help us understand why we have to do justice to one another. Why? Because God is holy, because God is just, there will be justice is done to us. And we have to understand that. And so we therefore must do justice to God as to what he deserves from us, but also to each other as to how we can best relate to one another. And so the 12 differences, I'll go down the social justice A side so we can kind of see the positive side so we can come to a clear understanding. Um, social justice A brings us to our knees before Jehovah as supreme and seeks a justice that begins with giving God his due. It brings unity by acknowledging our shared blame in Adam and our new identities in Christ. It offers the fruit of the spirit to joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. It champions a love that is not easily offended. It sees evil not only in systems where we ought to seek justice, but also within the twisted hearts of those who make those systems unjust. It assesses everyone of every ethnicity as guilty because of our group identity in Adam. It confronts us with the humbling reality that our self-righteousness is filthy rags before Christ, and Christ is the only ground for righteous standing. It calls us to love God with our whole minds. It teaches that the creator defines our worldview. It defines our, authentic our authenticity and freedom from having our identity come solely from God. It envisions the male-female differences as very good. It accepts the full humanity and worth of unborn image bearers of God. And it celebrates family and upholds the rhythms of self-giving within family as a beautiful and God-ordained signpost of Jesus and his relationship to the church. So social justice B would, would not do those things, would do the opposite of, again, that misplaced understanding of what it means to be right with God and to be right with one another. Um, you mentioned earlier, like you've encountered progressive Christianity. Um, what was something that stood out to you about that? No, it just that I saw the term. Oh, okay. And um, it, it was on it was on a Facebook uh, item, and I was like, I was like, since when do we associate Christianity with a political movement or you know something like this? Progressive Christianity basically says that. The things that we have understood from the church and the scriptures forever have been misinterpreted from the scriptures. And therefore, um, things like um, LGBTQ uh, and, and, and gender you know, identity and stuff like this, you can't base that on the Bible. So that would be a social justice B type of thing. And that's the way I read it. But I'm not sure. Okay. Okay. But I mean, it, you know, when you hear the word progressive, you hear all kinds of things pop up in your mind. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not one to, to inject politics into it, so I'm not going to, but there is the, the battles kind of being aligned before us as we, as we go through life now. I mean, I think you raise an important point that there should not be a political identity associated with Christianity. But that has often been the case on every ideological side of that spectrum, wherever that slider lands, there's probably someone who has tied Christianity to that political identity. 
Um, I mean, in the beginning, I, th- I think love. Cut, I think love cuts right through it, no matter where it should. People yeah. are on the spectrum. I think it's important that we understand that we find our identity in Christ first and foremost. I think Alan Slade preached about this a couple weeks ago when he was talking about the interpretation of Daniel's dream as to what that means for Nebuchadnezzar and as to who Nebuchadnezzar saw as worthy of worship, which wasn't God. It was Daniel for interpreting his dream, but that did not bring about a lasting change, even though it should have done. Other thoughts as to what the understanding of of worship and who we are meant to worship, how should that connect to social justice? As you were reading, um, social justice A come up, the thought that I had on the flow of that was that um, social justice is not a program, it's a position, mm-hmm. and it's a position before God. Mm-hmm. And if that position before God infuses everything that you do, and infuses how you see everyone else as made in the image of God, then you could deal with them in a appropriate social and just uh, condition. Mm-hmm. Other thoughts? Uh, the the yeah. question, does our vision of social justice take seriously the, the Godhead of God? Mm-hmm. I think that that is a critical thing we're going to have to teach the kids coming up. Because yeah. what we, I was listening to the Gospel Coalition. We actually listened to it with our daughter. And it was, it was a conversation about how the church is approaching um, LGBTQ, how how we love those people and how, and we were and our daughter having differing views. But what he did say was, and he was a pastor from England. He said, "These children, my granddaughters, are not going to grow up knowing husband and wife. That is the primary, and we're going to have to figure out how to navigate with the kids that are growing up in this. On what you were saying, you're immersed in it, and if you're not in God's Word and praying, you can be pulled away because some of those arguments can sound." To ourselves, yeah, that's right. But if we got to remember that we serve God first mm-hmm. and what His Word says, so I think it's really critical that we navigate as adults as kids come up, so we can help them navigate. Yeah, it's very confusing. I have a question. Why do you think we have to start with God in this discussion? The most uh, important thing about anybody is what they think about God, because mm-hmm. everything else flows from. And everything else changes. But I I think that we have, the church has historically missed the boat on a lot of things by going with tradition rather than focusing on God first. I mean, when I looked into racial reconciliation and was looking at the history um, of the church, it was shameful to me that the, the PCA which we're a member of, was one of the last ones in the 60s to fight for racial equality. And it just, it boggles my mind that we wouldn't be out front on something like that. It's an issue that's, it was extremely important. I grew up, you know, in the 70s. And it was an ex- issue that was extremely important. And basically what the PCA did, well, not PCA, but the Presbyterian Church, they, they were just silent. They were silent. And, and we should have been fighting on that side. So 
on the side of racial equality. So, you know, I think the church misses the boat. You can't miss the boat if God's at the heart of what you're doing. Well, um, I recognize what you say, and it's, but earlier we talked about politics, with Christianity and politics being two different things. So I think about the church in Germany in the 1930s, well, the vast majority of the German church did not resist Hitler. Mm-hmm. And we look back and say those people were bad and evil, and yet there are many Christians today who say politics, I mean, those, those Christians were out of it. Many people today say politics and your faith are two separate things. And I think our faith, like everything else in our life, I think our actions come from our faith, our politics, the books I read, the movies I watch. Everything should reflect my faith, and my faith should be based on God and what he's revealed. So It's a modern Western construct to allow, have your beliefs and your actions be different. Mm-hmm. That's a modern Western construct. Where you can believe one thing, behave another. In the old days, and especially in the East, that's why, you know, when Abraham um, blessed Jacob, all he did was say some words. Why can't you say those words? Like, that, those words and his actions were the same thing. What? You mean Isaac. What did I say? Isaac. Isaac blessed Jacob. I meant when Isaac blessed Jacob, yeah. We got you. That's good. I'm going to jump back to Ali's question about worship. I think what it has to do with social justice is when we are worshiping God, you know, we are in complete love with Him and complete submission to Him. So what that means is we allow Him to define what is justice and what is not. And we have to be willing to really open-handedly say, you know, I'm a fish swimming in the ocean. I can't but be affected by the water around me. I'm a person in American culture in this weirdo time. So I have to really um, seek to lay aside what I would like to be the truth and what everybody else around is pressuring me to believe the truth and just go to God and his word and say, you get to say what is justice and what is not. And I'm going to be 100% on board with it, whether I like it or not, you know, whether it's popular or not, or whatever. So to me, if we're to worship God and to love him fully, we will grow in our love, not only for what is just, but for what he says is just, no matter what. I think, I mean, you raise an absolutely important thing is to letting God define what justice is, because he alone is just, he alone is goodness. And... I think there are kind of really interesting um, versions as to how much justice we think we want when it comes to a lot of churches that are, I would say, more on the social justice side of wanting to right the wrongs of the past, wrongs that exist, um, wrongs that have been done and will continue to be done, um, but also overreaching, right, correcting wrongs that have been said to be wrong by God. And saying that actually those don't matter as much. That justice doesn't need to be done. And I think what's really fascinating is that in a lot of these churches that have this drive toward the social justice B side of social justice is that there is almost always unilaterally a denial of the gospel. That penal substitutionary atonement isn't a thing. That Christ died because he was um, a... 
He was a rebel. He was overturning systems. He was defying the religious authority. He was reaching out and being an activist to the poor. There's a great chapter about this called The Historical Jesus in the Screwtape Letters, if anyone's interested, um, as to how people want to use Jesus to further their points. But they also deny his primary purpose, which was to reconcile us with God. Which is that, why they're so fervent to prove their own righteousness right, by that correcting the wrongs themselves. Divine justice is somehow something backwards and evil, but justice that they interpret through what they want to be truth, which is the reason I hate the phrase, this is my truth. No, truth is truth. That's your perception. I teach public school. I, um, <laughs> I hate that phrase too. <laughs> But there's that that need almost to um, like deny God what He is due as the deliverer of justice, as the only true and righteous judge. Um, that even in that phrase, right? Who, who here is without sin cast the first stone? When Jesus is condemning the people who sought to righteously persecute the woman caught in adultery. That question, in one sense, is really liberating, right? Because the woman is freed from her accusers because none of them are without sin. But Jesus was. If anyone could have thrown a stone, it was him. There is one who is without sin who can cast that stone and took that burden for us. With his part one, he gives us this subtitle of Jehovah or Jezebel, giving the example from the Old Testament of how in uh, the Northern Kingdom, how with Ahab and Jezebel, how the understanding of what was worth worshiping was corrupted. So were there any thoughts when you guys were reading that section as to things you hadn't considered before? He also gives the um, example of the conquistadors and the Aztec court <laughs> as to what Cortes and his explorers found. And I think it's important that he also ties it contemporarily to the Reformation because it was happening at the same time um, that as, uh, Martin Luther was being pulled before the Diet of Worms. Hernan Cortez was murdering natives who were also murdering their own. Right. For glory, God, and gold. That was the three cries of the Age of Exploration, which is... Exactly. They were gold, and then the other two could follow. Um, gold, then glory, and then maybe a little God. Yeah, but the glory was for them, yeah. right, rather than who it is owed to. Um, what were your thoughts on that section, Jehovah or Jezebel? I know we haven't done the other two questions, so it'll be in October and November, but just for the head. Any thoughts on his inclusion of that example of Jezebel? Because that word gets thrown around a lot by like hyper-Pentecostals of like, the Jezebel spirit and all that stuff. That's not a thing. Um, but there is such a thing as a, a corruption and then a willingness to collude in that corruption because it's freeing suddenly to no longer owe a debt to God, which is the beauty of the gospel, but also the lure of things that are not the gospel because you feel somehow that you're, you're exculpated from that because it's not real. Any thoughts? Well, whenever you get away from the true gospel, your actions and your worldview is going to be corrupted. And uh, we lived in you know, Nuremberg, Germany for seven years. And so one of the things that happened in the turn of the century in 1900 Germany is that there were guys that went around and preached uh, against the Bible and the truth of the Bible because 
they hadn't found archaeological evidence of it. Germany was big into archaeology at that time. Later, all of the sites were found. Mm -hmm. But one of the, the speculations about the decline of Germany is that they really lost the truth of God's word and they lost the heart of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And that that set them up then for the 30s and 40s. And um, so I think that's a prime example in our world of the church, and you know, we might say that the church that's holding on to the truth of the word of the gospel. Um, and we're a minority in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, some would say there's a minority of seminaries that are really preaching the word, and certainly a minority of churches. Mm -hmm. So we're going to seem, you know, hopefully we're, you know, we're we're figuring out how to live in these days uh, according to the gospel, but, but it's a uh, word we're definitely minority words. Ellie, I'd like to come back to your, <clears throat> your very first question, which is question number one in the book. Does our vision of social justice take seriously the Godhead of God? The first thing that came to my mind in terms of what does it mean to take seriously the Godhead of God since God, the only way we know who God is and what God's will is, is through his word. So in order to take seriously the Godhead, or God in, in the question of social justice, is to take seriously what the Bible says about these issues that come under the umbrella of social justice. Now the thing that divides churches that embrace social justice B social justice A, is that very thing, whether or not we take seriously what the Bible says about these issues. Mm -hmm. And when we don't, we see all the things that have flowed out of what we call social justice today that this book is labeling social justice B. Mm -hmm. The man on his own attempts to solve these problems. This mess is what you get. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing, the book, I hadn't thought about this before until this discussion this evening, but the chapter before chapter one that asked the question, what is social justice? Mm -hmm. The place to start is to come up with a biblical definition of the word justice. Mm -hmm. You get that nailed down and then a definition of social justice just falls into place. But that's not as easily done as it might seem. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that we could do that tonight. No. It's that involved. I will say this, though, that in both the original Hebrew and in the original Greek, the word for justice and the word for righteous are very, very closely tied together. I think they have to be, because justice is ultimately doing what is right. Especially in the New Testament, mm -hmm. you see the word in the, the interpreter has to determine, am I going to call this justice or righteousness? Mm -hmm. Am I going to call this right or just? And makes, makes that decision. But it is the same word. Hebrew has two words. Uh, although the one word, the word for righteousness, can also be interpreted justice. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's a very important if we can nail that down, we've taken a big step forward in solving this yeah. issue. Why is it, so I'm going to reframe the, the discussion now, 
why is it that social justice A adherence and social justice B adherence can use the same scriptures and come to different conclusions? I don't know that they do. Yeah. I don't think B uses scripture. You Actually, so? that's what progressive Christians would say. Blue letter, red letter, Christians. Yeah, you would have, there's a whole there's a whole movement out there saying that um, we, the church, historically have misinterpreted the scriptures so badly that we miss the part that says, you know, that some things that are accepted by the folks today, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the, the whole... Uh, uh, same-sex marriage thing. That's the example I would use, is that um, they're saying that, oh, that's perfectly scriptural. I don't know that, I don't know that the church would necessarily agree with that. But I know that my daughter would be highly offended by me stating what I believe. I think, um, I'm a 90s baby, born in 91, um, and when the whole idea of the emergent church came about with particularly Rob Bell, but also like Brian McLaren, Tony Evans, um, there was this first and foremost need, like a, almost a manic need to denigrate what the Bible was, that the Bible was no longer God's word. It was the words of men about God and that they had a primitive understanding of what God was and what he wanted to do and what his love looked like, that we now have a more refined and enlightened understanding of. So we can see that the laws that he set aside for um, Israel and Leviticus, including the things that have been fulfilled with Christ's work on the cross, such as the need for circumcision, such as the avoidance of shrimp, thank goodness, um, and mixed fabrics and whatnot, which is often the first thing that they go to, right? Well, do you, you wear mixed fabrics, don't you? Um, that the need for those laws was something that only Israel had to follow, and now we have this better understanding of God. But then they also have to then take away what justice did, right, as to why Christ died. It was because he was killed for being too revolutionary or because he just loved you so much. And it was just love. I mean, that was Rob Bell's book, right? Love wins. And just how unilaterally that had to deny the gospel because of what he needed the gospel to be in order to then say that, oh, there is no fear of hell, right? Hell isn't a thing. There isn't a fear of punishment anymore. It can just be love and how beautiful that is. And in a way it kind of is. This is like one of my favorite weird bits of linguistic history, but the word utopia has two simultaneous meanings because it's root topos just means place, but it's prefix can be either or. There are people that interpret it one way and people that interpret it the other. So it has two simultaneous meanings. And so it's prefix you can either be the word for good in Greek, like euphoria, um, and so therefore utopia means good place, or it can be ooh, which means nowhere. And so simultaneously, the word utopia means a good place and nowhere. And just how, by its roots, it can't exist. Even in Thomas More's book in 1517, uh, Utopia, where the word became popularized, 
His scholar leaves it. Haida has found the perfect society where all of the world's ills are put right and all of the backwards criminal laws of like Tudor England are justified and rectified in utopia. Haida isn't living there anymore. He left because it can't exist. It's not sustainable. And I think that that's just such a, a heartbreaking thing when you see how badly people want justice and how in a way that can and cannot be accomplished. Because the way that we want to accomplish it, the way that a lot of social justice B wants to accomplish it, has to deny the godhood of God, has to denigrate or deny the fundamental understanding of the fact that we are sinners and that Christ died for you. Thoughts. It also has to deny the inerrancy of scripture. It has to, yeah. It has to. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard why, though. I'm sorry? I haven't heard why. That's, that was my original question. Why are they denying? What? Why does one person read the scripture this way and another person read the same scripture this way? Well, I mean, why did the Sadducees read the scriptures that way and interpret them the way that they did? Why were there money changes in the temple? I have an answer, but I want to hear from you. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on what you're really worshiping. Yeah, yeah. it comes back to that question. I think it's view of God and view of self. Mm. Well, if, you're, if you're drawing off of, off of so, a text. Let's, um, so what, what would A say is view of God? What would B say is view of God? What would A say is view of self? And what would B say is view of self? A would, a would view God as the creator, um, A would view self as the created, uh, B would view, if they viewed, if B viewed God, um, B would view God as, uh, as Mother Nature, <laughs> as, you know, all this came, um, and it might have some design, but it all came. It's all from somewhere. And um, self, um, well, we just got to make it through all of this. And tribal collectivism comes from that um, column B kind of view of, of self. Um, and once tribal collectivism become really important, um, then others become less important. And the worship of ideas and things that are come from the self, like the natural yeah. Yeah, I think so. solutions. Another route could be going back to the 17, 1800s was what I would call the biblical Christianity view, which says that you know, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, everyone's a sinner, no one has the right to be in charge. Mm -hmm. As opposed to the Enlightenment, which mm -hmm. said, you're a God, I'm a God, everyone's a God, mm -hmm. everyone should be in charge. It's panentheism. And so those two competing worldviews, I don't, I don't think this is where you're going, but there's also those two competing worldviews of, you know, original sin, we are sinners. That is where I'm going. Oh, okay. <laughs> Good! Okay. Versus, you know, we're all gods, or perfectible, mm -hmm. as opposed to we're all Go ahead. Sorry. I think that it really has to be who you want to have in charge. Mm -hmm. um, part of what we haven't discussed, and, and this, these are huge topics, is as Christians, most of us believe 
that God has a created order. Mm -hmm. Family, male, female, government, society. There's a way things are supposed to be. It's supposed to be ordered. And so if you get rid of God, all that can go out the window. I mean, there are articles being written about how the nuclear family is really extremely detrimental to people's health and well-being. And uh, there are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, really, who do you want to be in charge? If, if you want, if you worship God as, as the God we understand, and you submit yourself to him, and you learn about him through scripture, you're looking to scripture to inform you. But if you have the idea that some of my relatives have that, you know, God is not worthy of my worship, and there are people who know about God, all about him, and think he's a bad guy, he's not worthy of my worship, mm -hmm. then you are constantly seeking, I believe, to reinforce your view as you look at Scripture and make Scripture conform to you yeah. and your goals. All of us, every human being desires to be righteous, mm -hmm. and we all have to have a sense of self-worth and significance. And we, some of us get it by kneeling before the cross, and we get that from God, and some of us get it you know, under a rock or something. So that's fundamentally humanistic. Yeah. And this, and and by the way, for the young folks in here, this started a long time before you were born. I mean, if we want to... This, 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 whole, this whole thing started a long time before you were born. And um, what you're seeing now is the culmination of many, many years. Yes. Centuries. Yeah. I mean... If you want to get real real for a second, this is Genesis 3. Did yeah. God really yeah, say? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Did God really say? Yeah. And and a lot of the answers are in Genesis 1 through 3. Mm -hmm. yeah. for, as far as worldview goes. And, and the theory of evolution was able, and it was accepted, to cut man away from the idea that God is my creator. It's like, no, evolution is my creator. So mm -hmm. I don't have any obligation to God. So I can go off on. That's as a segue, sideway, side truth. Anyone else? Ron? I mean, David? <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't it really man saying, you know, we can do it on our own? Yeah, we can, yeah, we can do it on our own. You will be like God. Yeah, right. And, but, you know, what we see is that without, we can't do anything without God empowering us. Mm -hmm. So we see progressive people trying to do it, but they can't, they can't yeah. hold it together. Actually right? make things worse. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it, 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 there's, you know, they, they can't hold it together morally or in a way that, that accomplishes things without the backfighting and the fighting and fighting and all the hate, well, the hate, the anger. Yeah, right, it, it comes out because God's not in their hearts. rebelling against God's created yeah. order things they're, they're saying things are logical arguments or Western concept um, you know facts are a Western concept all these things that ha are how we deal with reality are all Western concepts to be discarded you can't that, argue with somebody who doesn't believe an argument is a valid form of persuasion I think we need to take caution though that the folks that are really column B in their belief system they've got a truth and there are some pieces of the real truth that are in their arguments and the historical church as i pointed out earlier has not done a great job of holding to column a like they should have 
-hmm. and not saying, you know, this is about God. This is about my relationship to God first and where I stand and what I need. You know. Going back to something that Tim said earlier, it was Tim, but um, it's our view of scripture. It's, you know, is it God's inerrant breathed word? Or is it not? <laughs> and if we believe it is in total, then that's where our, you know, our faith, everything comes from that. But if we start changing some of it or saying, well, only parts of it are true, then we start jumping the line to column two, mm -hmm. where we are then deciding what part of God's will, because there are many churches, organizations out there who are, you know, believers, Christians, whatever you want to say, but they believe parts of God were true and parts of it were just, you know, now they're archaic or whatever. Yeah. And I think I'm going along with um, your view of scripture. If you don't take scripture seriously, you can ignore um, truths such as the inspiration of scripture and also um, the curse of removing or adding to scripture. Mm -hmm. And from that you can get around things that you consider problematic in scripture. And that's a lot of what progressive Christianity does. It gets around um, things that it considers just um, developments or influence of the culture of that time. Mm -hmm. Especially with Paul and his view of uh, family and gender roles. Mm -hmm. And you can make the scriptures <clears throat> say anything you want if you want if, if you do that. Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know if you ever did the RC rules studies when when my kids were in the seventh grade. We did one on um, he did a whole thing on relativity and mm -hmm. truth. And how everything's relative and that's where this is all moved towards my truth it's it's true because it's true to me mm -hmm. you know is there you know there's there's you absolute truth yeah but they don't want to accept that you know they want to not say because and that's why they don't want to look at god's word and say it's truth mm -hmm. because they want to be their own gods yeah we oh, we all do but it, if we weren't apart from christ shameless plug October's Women's Ministry Book Club is R.C. Sproul's If There's a God, Why Are There Atheists? Please come. Okay. <laughs> I think we're seeing things even move beyond that now. Because I, one thing I was going to say is that not only we can do it ourselves, but we can decide for ourselves what is right or wrong. Therefore, totally not coming out and saying it, but even maybe not even consciously thinking it. But totally setting aside God and what God says in his word. We then determine what is right and what is wrong. And no longer just your truth and my truth. Now it's my truth and you better go along with it. Yeah. Or you're you're gonna pay. And that's where you're we're being at. Impressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't go along with Oh, my truth could change from day to day, and it's just as valid as it was yesterday. Yeah. Like the middle schoolers who wear different colored bands, bracelets, 
to choose their gender for the day. Ooh. What? That, that's a fad, but... Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's an outward sign. Of, I, what, know, I keep, what I keep going, and I don't know how to do it, and I'm not doing a very good job, is that we need to listen. Mm -hmm. Because there are people crying out in our country, crying out, and they're getting angry, and we need to listen because something is going on here. And, you know, whenever I pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done as earth as it is in heaven, I'm thinking inside, God, you need to straighten this mess out because it's getting bad. But and I think that's, that's one of the things that we're promised. I mean, that's one of the great truths that we can take from the book of Ecclesiastes is that this is going to happen and this is going to happen again. This will... What has been uh, is what will yeah, be. Yeah, this, this is not new. This is not new. To throw out another thought, you know, Satan is the great counterfeiter, mm -hmm. and he's getting people to worship him with his way of doing things. But it's very rare in an argument that both sides or one side or the other is totally without grounds. Mm -hmm. So I think we do need to realize there have been injustices. We, we need to fully acknowledge and even, well, I, I don't think we should celebrate, but there have been wrong things done. And there are people, injustice exists today, and, you know, there's a history of lots of bad things and lots of good things, but, um, you know, there is real pain, and there have been real injustices, and we can't ignore that. Mm -hmm. we, well, we ought not to. We can't be biblically faithful and reality faithful and ignore that. Mm -hmm. And so, these people who have pain and anger and stuff like that, it's coming from somewhere and, you know, we're not just trying to win an argument, we're trying to win the soul and the person. And it's been said, you know, people don't know, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And I think that's something, if we want to be an influence for our culture, we need to show compassion, show understanding, and show that we relate to them. And to do that, we really need to do that. Amen. But, but then we also want to not let go of truth. So we need to confront injustice without compromising the truth. So there really is injustice out there. Yes. I would say also, and I guess I don't, we need to prefix each of our arguments because in my mind, the injustice label encompasses racial, like you mentioned, and then there's this gender sexual thing, and then there's the economic thing, and there's all these different... They're all addressed. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are systems that were put in place wrongly many, many years ago in our country that are still hurting people. And that's why a lot of these people are yelling. Mm -hmm. A lot right. of you folks are yelling. Systems are a codified version of male-female marriage. And you could say that system is oppressing people. So well, the whole section of like part three... Um, it's called Sinners or Systems. So we'll talk yeah, about the concept of yeah. systemic injustice and what that looks like and how it manifests in different relations when it comes to different types of injustice, racial injustice, but also economic injustice and gender injustice. Right, so I was, but I was thinking, listening to Shay, I was like, if he's talking about this or this, I totally agree. Unless he, but if he's talking about this or this, I completely disagree. So. I just reminded of Corey Ten Boone and I read her book, The Hiding Place, years and years ago and how throughout her imprisonment, she's told firm to the gospel. Mm -hmm. She loved through the gospel. She loved the people there. And when she was giving a speech when she was free, um, 
one of the guards came up to her mm -hmm. and she had to forgive him, living her faith. But she made an impact on just one person just by believing in who God is and not being out there, you know, fighting. Yeah, so but she's featured in chapter six. It's okay. No, but I'm just struck no, with that. You're right. Ultimately, yeah. where when we leave tonight, we need to realize who God is our our God, and He is in control of all of this. And if we are focusing on Him, He is going to give us the ability to navigate mm -hmm. through this. So I want to throw a softball question: Who is God? That's a softball. God is a spirit, infinite and unchanged. Yeah. The first question is the Godhood of God. And we haven't really actually talked too much about God himself tonight. So why don't we spend some time talking about who God is? Because if that is our ground, then we should focus on him first. But, so we know he's just, but what else is he? And how does that, how can that relate to this conversation? He's a creator who made us in his image. Mm -hmm. but, you know, it takes us back to Genesis. Uh, it takes us back to the relationship in the garden. And um, that did God really say that? But he did, you know, he did really say that. And um, I think somebody mentioned that it's understanding our position before the creator, sovereign king of the universe, the one who's in charge of everything and um, has expressed great love. Um, I, I think it starts with creator first. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would piggybacking on what Shay said um, a few minutes ago, I would use the term, just because of my background, the master architect, mm -hmm. which is really clear. Like he designed everything and he put it in order and he designed, I mean, think of this super, super complex system. If you're designing a super complex system and all these pieces work together, it's perfectly synchronized and it does exactly what you designed to do. And then one little component goes rogue and there are consequences to complex systems when pieces fail. And God is the master architect. He put together the universe, put together the world, he put us and animals in the environment. Um, which is probably part of the social justice we can talk about. It, it, it's all designed to work together a certain way and you put in rules in place for people to live a certain way so everything in the context of human flourishing would work as he intended. And if you can see him through that lens and know your place in his system, and it's a system of love, we're not cognizant, it's a machine. Um, will be fulfilled. Then, yeah, then it, it will go well with us. You know, all, that, all the blessings of Deuteronomy 26 or 28 kick in. And it goes well with us and just human flourishing that we've seen, you know, for hundreds and even thousands of years sometimes in earthly history. Um, but then as you begin to deviate from his plan, the master architect's plan, it doesn't go well with you. And you begin to disrupt and break down other components of the system, and suddenly it's not what the architect intended. There, there is a thirst, I think, for recognized sovereignty. And there is a way that that thirst can be quenched through recognizing the sovereignty of God. But in the quest for self-sovereignty and then imposing that version of reality on others, so that way you still ultimately reign supreme, that your version of justice, your version of self has become validated by those around you. That is a never-ending quest that will never bring the happiness that you want. Um, 
And I mean, we see so many like cheesy after school specials talking about this, about like, you know, money can't buy you happiness and all this nonsense. But ultimately, it's true, right? Self-sovereignty, self-rule ends in despair, even though it ultimately is what we want. I don't ever think I saw myself quoting from a Neil Gaiman book about uh, the idea of wanting what like of this idea of satisfaction because in Coraline, which is a great kids horror film. Um, but there's a, a moment where she says when she's offered whatever she wants from this really twisted entity, she says, I, I don't want whatever I want. Nobody does. Not really. Because ultimately if you get whatever you want, where does it end? And is that actually what you want? There's always going to be something more. There is, a healthy understanding of the world around us when we recognize that there are limitations and there are, as you said, systems in place, that we have a role in those systems. And that role isn't as creator or as sovereign king, it's as creature. And that is comforting to understand when you recognize how badly you need salvation, that there isn't going to be a way to make yourself happy because you are fallen. <clears throat> No, there's a way to make yourself happy in this. <laughs> to to uh, seek outside God. of God. To seek yes, God. Mm -hmm. outside of God. Yeah. The Godhead is also the first relational unit, Father, mm -hmm. Son, and Holy Spirit, which gives us an example. And social is not a great word to define it, but it is the but center. community, communal, yeah, it's community. Yeah. It's, it's unity. It's relationship built on righteousness and truth. And you know, it's a powerful. You know, vision for us from from that comes marriage and all of their relationships and the church and and all of that. That's because we're made in this image, right? Mm -hmm. right, right. Which is question two. <laughs> so right. plan ahead for October. Okay. <laughs> well, the word justice is challenging enough, but to put an adjective social in front of it really, to me, muddies the word. And another thing we will discuss at some point is. Collectivism versus individ individualism, because that's a big part of this, too. Yeah, how we understand how we relate to the world and what we are owed. Right. Yeah. If this ethnicity has a higher incarceration rate than this ethnicity as a group, is that in itself social injustice? There's a, a, that's a part where he talks about demographics. And I mean, we can go into with the ratification of the 13th Amendment and then the immediate passing of vagrancy laws and then with Brother B. Hayes pulling out the National Guard from the South and Reconstruction. There's a lot that we can build into where, where a lot of, oh, Richard Bushman's The Color of Law is a great book on that resource if you want yeah. that. Um, but there, I think that's what makes it so difficult is that there have been injustices done yeah. and then how do we differentiate Systemic. that? Systemic right. injustice exists. But not every apparent discrepancy or inequity means is a systemic right. injustice. That's literally one of the things in the book. You only had to read question one. That was all it was. So we're just yeah. doing a summary of the whole book tonight. I mean, more, we'll go in depth. We'll actually like read the question. Right, since we already covered it. But I think I think it's important what we said a minute ago. In this question, it does talk about the Godhead. Yes. And I think what Mark said is very important there is that you know we were we were born as relational people because of the Godhead, mm -hmm. because we were made in his image. And that makes us relational people. Right.
the first thing that God said that was not good was it was not good for man to be alone. This is the first malediction. Hmm. I'm sorry, the first what? Malediction. Malediction as opposed to Adver. benediction. God okay. kept saying, this is good, this is good, this is good. Then he looked at Adam and said, boy, it's not good for you to be alone. <laughs> you really need a woman in your life. And it's came Eve. And then everything was very good. <laughs> <laughs> I think another thing that should be discussed is what is the role of the church in all this. Mm -hmm. If Abraham was promised that it would be a blessing to the nations, we are that blessing made manifest. So how should we um, interact with the world around us concerning justice and injustice? Right. There is a biblical demand that we do justice to one another, regardless of whether we see them as members of our tribe or not. And how do you relate that to the Godhead? <laughs> I'm serious. Every person is in the image of God. Yeah, we meet no ordinary men in our lifetimes, yeah. Lewis. Other thoughts? You want to answer your own question? No, I don't. Oh, okay. <laughs> Oh, oh, come on. Lean back in your position of power. <laughs> come on. I will oppress you. Yeah. <laughs> has your question been answered? <laughs> yes, it has. Answer his question. Go ahead. Go ahead. I think it relates to the Godhead in part because God the Trinity has set up these systems, as Daniel said, he's a great architect. But he didn't do it for just for his church. Every person that gives him the middle finger every hour of the day is swamped in blessing from the way that God has set up the world and the way it operates. And when we pursue justice, when we take the gospel out of our parking lot, as Barb Loker used to say, um, we are by very nature blessing those, causing human flourishing in general, even for those who are the greatest rebel rebels against the God who is blessing them. Mm -hmm. Every threat, even. So in that way, we are joining him in the work he already started and put into process. I think Tim's trying to keep us on question one. Yes, that's mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do. Covering the whole book. <laughs> yeah. So God, God is holy, just, loving, caring, all at the same time. And we are made in his image, so we should reflect him through, his, through our dependence upon him, and that's how we should treat people. But that only that understanding only comes from a proper understanding of who God is. Yeah. If we think that we are the creator and not the creature, then we can tend to oppress others or not care about justice, not reflect God. So all of these things we're talking about, the proper way in which to go about loving and caring people and looking out for justice and seeking to right wrongs and seeking to write injustice it's all a reflection of god himself yeah and so understanding god better i think can help us to be better serving our neighbors and loving our neighbors it's interesting as ali pointed out that the first question is really kind of you know the first commandment but it's also if you've ever read a systematic theology um, theology proper it always starts with the doctrine of god because every other um, loci develops upon the doctrine of God. So in that way, in a systematic way, um, when we're looking at theology, it all starts with God, but also I think how we 
need to relate to others and even how we need to look inwards to ourselves. You know, Calvin has a quote, um, the more we know God, the more we know about ourselves and our hearts are continuous, continual idol factories. Chapter three. <laughs> if we can, um, if we can have a, a, a better understanding of God, then we can have a better understanding of ourselves and the places that we fall short and that we need to repent of. And then, then we can reach out and help and serve our neighbors. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that's the most important thing, that when we encounter the Lord, when we see ourselves in the mirror, we walk away changed. Yeah. Like we don't close our eyes or forget it or postpone it, but we encounter the living God and become more like Him. And don't waste those opportunities. Yeah. yeah. And kind of going back to, I think, what you were talking about listening to people who are struggling with things, if they may say something that, you know, they may say something that is untrue according to Scripture, we can't affirm that, but we should listen, but we should also be willing to share that everyone is equal at the cross. Mm -hmm. They've got their sin, I've got my sin. And I think it's amazing when you are transparent about your own weaknesses that they, they may not be receptive to the truth because only the Spirit can really change their hearts, but so what Schaefer calls like pre-evangelism, you start to plant seeds into their hearts when the gospel is fully shared with them. And if you're open and transparent about your own struggles and failures, because we all are equal at the cross with our sin, then only Christ is the only one that can fix anything. Yeah. yeah. Nothing. Nothing that we do on our own. Yeah. In his question one, he extensively, Thaddeus Williams extensively quotes from Romans one, which is important to do. Um, and I want to read an excerpt from page 18, um, talking specifically about race, but talking about how injustice is always that violation of the first commandment. Um, so looking, starting near the middle of that top paragraph, it says, why is racism so evil? If we leave God out of our answer to that question, we will fail to grasp the true diabolical depths of racism and find ourselves boxing ghosts of the real problem. This then is how Paul adds deeper hues to our picture of injustice. Look deep enough underneath any horizontal human against human injustice, and you will always find a vertical human against God injustice, a refusal to give the creator the worship only the creator is due. All injustice is a violation of the first commandment. Well, because we're, because we're um, going to worship something no matter what, um, as worshipers, um, the challenge for us, I think, to represent God as his image bearers is to make sure that that vertical um, relationship is where it's supposed to be, that um, that we're living a lifestyle of worship that, um, that then causes us to be able to, to do the right thing in the horizontal relationships that we have. And I think um, a lot of times the gospel is, um, you know, the, the people around us are watching our responses to things. They're seeing, um, they're seeing that attitude of worship. I believe, you know, you could be with someone and know where they're, where that attitude of, you know, what they are worshiping. Even though we still are idol factories, I think there's a, the, the, um, the challenge here. I think is to make sure that that vertical relationship with God is the most important thing. Um, His word. Um, you know, being in his word goes without saying, but but acknowledging 
daily that he is the creator, the master architect, and that that expresses itself in, in what our responses to people and situations and things in such a way that it reflects him. Mm -hmm. I think the Godhead also shows there's individual roles within the Trinity, mm -hmm. and we often have what I would call individual assignments, and we also have church assignments. But I think of a lady in South Africa in the midst of apartheid who, you know, taught the ladies how to knit and had a space on her farm for them to sell sweaters, to make money, and no government, nobody. It was just something that she did to fight injustice from, from her heart. It was her assignment, right? And there's lots and lots of examples of that. When any of us support a missionary or, or help in this way or that way, whatever. <clears throat> and then there's the church responsibility to respond uh, as a, in a corporate way as well. It's feet on the ground kind of practicality that God had shows us that. Just to go along with what Gwen said, everybody is created to worship. It, it's part of our DNA. It's built into us. And then Bob Dylan, bless his heart, got it right. Everybody's got to serve somebody. And right along with we're created to worship, we will serve somebody. And ultimately it comes down to we'll serve God or we'll serve self. It's just another way of serving Satan. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you think of the uniting cry of a lot of the mystics from the 1910s and 1920s that then went into Anton LaVey's The Satanic Bible, it was, do as thou wilt. I think a lot of, a big part of the, part of the answer to the question, where does the Godhead of God fit into our concept of social justice? Is, is seeing what we do as a matter of how we serve God, which is just another way of saying the same thing we've been saying. I know we're coming up on the 8.30 cutoff. Um, I don't want to have like a hard line, but people have lives. Um, are there final thoughts, final contributions, final questions that we can open to the floor now before we close in prayer and then people hopefully take snacks home? <laughs> because. <laughs> I don't want to. I would say to everybody that part that one of God's characteristics is that He's sovereign, mm -hmm. and He's a sovereign over this whole thing. He's sovereign over the fact that every church out there now is talking about justice. He's sovereign over the fact that there's a whole bunch of folks out there that are crying injustice. All of this is within His sovereignty. And so I would just remind everybody of that. There's a reason we're here. It's a good reason. And I think that um, we need to start on the fundamentals, like the problem with who God is. There's a great um, quote on page 17 at the bottom. And there's, it just reminds me of that scripture that I can't quote right now from, um, from Romans about exchanging the glory of God. Oh, yeah, it's from the passage starting um, in 117. Yeah, but this, this says, because the evil... Evil did not originate in politics, society, or the economy. It ex is expressed there. Mm -hmm. But evil originates in human hearts that exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling 
mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And that um, that's all over scripture, but especially in Romans. And, um, I, and I think we'll see as we read that um, that you could kind of keep coming back to this in every issue mm -hmm. or every, you know, every um, twisted truth. You know, somebody mentioned that churches are taking, you know, some, mm -hmm. some things. I mean, there's a mixture of what's true and what's not true, the twists. And um, I, I just keep coming back to this. It seems to play out in so many areas, but, um, but particularly since we've been talking about the Godhood mm -hmm. of God um, and who he is and not, not like the master architect and um, keeping that as the central, I mean, he is the object of our worship. Kind of like my students. Okay, that's not my role here. I was gonna say, like... <laughs> um, kind of piggybacking what you were saying. I think sometime in the near future there will be probably great opportunity to minister to people who are absolutely broken because of like the transgender thing as an example. They're living their lives that don't correspond to reality, mm -hmm. and reality comes from God, who is the you know. He is reality. And when you don't live according to his design, you end up breaking yourself. Um, I'm trying to remember the, the funny illustration of, you know, you can't, you can't break gravity. Gravity will break you when you try to jump off a building. So I think there will be, maybe sooner than we think, a great opportunity to minister to people who are just absolutely broken because they've realized their, their life's been a lie. Yeah and they're looking for truth and they're actually looking for truth now but they want to make it up on their own so i think just uh two things and i'll be done uh, one i think pray for opportunities to um look for people who are broken or maybe they come to you and god brings them into your life and just be open and honest with them be caring and loving and then two do the same thing in our own hearts, as Gwen was saying, is that we need to continue to worship God and repent of our own sins so that we can um, show others uh, Christ in our own lives. And remember that there is a deceiver who prowls like a lion. And that deceiver doesn't often put things up as being dark so that you want to run from it. It's put up as light mm -hmm. and attractive candy filled um, and kind of takes that self and just pumps that baby up and flights that full um, for a time. You will not surely die, you will be like God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You read in James that true and pure religion is caring for our widows and the unfortunate. And that um, that requires a huge level of mercy and selflessness, and, and a culture that and a mindset that is all about the self. It would stand to reason that um, the correct view is to not view yourself as the more important, but to be selfless and to show mercy, and through that you declare justice by being merciful and lifting others up and leading them to Christ.
Father, we come before you knowing that we are uh, we are your created uh, humans, Lord, and that um, our our place apart from you is really a, a bad. It's a sad situation, Lord. But thanks to your grace and mercy, and the wonderful work of your Son on the cross, we can come before you. We can fellowship together. We can take these tough topics. And we just thank you, Lord, that uh, we are starting by focusing on you. We ask that you'd keep us in that place and that you'd guide us through this book club um, to learn and to see things that we can practically do to represent you, to love our fellow man, and to serve you in our communities. And we ask that you help us to learn these lessons as we go through this. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. Mm -hmm.